new beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Black, and we have our guest host, Jade Black, on the podcast. Jade, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you, Joshua. Thank you for having me today. It's exciting. I'm really excited for our next guest, Philip Goldberg. And he is an author and co-author of some of 25 books published in more than a dozen languages. He's also a public speaker, a workshop leader, a spiritual counselor, meditation teacher, and an ordained interfaith minister. He does it all. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> all right. And uh, he's a resident of Los Angeles, and he co-hosts a Spirit Matters podcast and leads American Veda tours and blogs regularly on Elephant Journal and Spirituality and Health. His book, American Veda, was named by Huffington Post and Library Journal as one of the top 10 religion books of 2010. It was followed in 2018 by the popular biography, The Life of Yogananda, and his newest book, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, is set to be released on August 4th. So thank you so much, Phil, for coming on the podcast. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Do you get, still get excited when a uh, a book comes out? I know there's 25 of them. <laughs> um, I do, actually. Well, more so in some cases than others, but I'm excited about this one because it turns out to be a lot more timely than we anticipated. Did you know this stuff was going to go down before you wrote the book or it just happened? <laughs> I am not prescient enough to have predicted a pandemic or worldwide demonstrations uh, for Black Lives Matter or uh, anything that's transpired in the past few months. I was prescient enough to know that times were crazy last year when I wrote the book and would be even crazier uh, when it came out. But I was thinking only in terms of the buildup to the uh, American election no no idea that the uh the the crises that have hit us so hard would ever appear on the horizon and so what do you see when it comes to when these like crazy times or these emotional events occur in people's spiritual practices like do you I'm sorry that... could you could you say that again yeah, so, so what do you find when it comes to spiritual practices in these crazy times? Like, Do people get pulled towards it? Is it just more difficult to do? I'm just very curious. There were two things that I saw happening that prompted me to write the book. One was uh, among people who uh, had serious spiritual practices and, and engaged their spiritual lives with some dedication, the, the times were, there was so much turbulence and uh, anxiety that people would sometimes say, oh, they're too stressed to uh, meditate or do their yoga, whatever their practices were. And my thought was, no, this is when you need them most. And, and as I say in my book, if, you know, saying I have to be calm in order to do something that makes me calm is like saying I have to be clean before I can shower. It, 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 it's, it's spiritual practices are always practical and useful, but especially when in times of anxiety and discomfort, 
uh, that's when we we call on them for our own uh, self-preservation and protection. The other reaction I heard was from people who uh, cared so much about what was going on in the world to the whatever extent they were activists. They just said, "I have no time to you know to go, turn inward. It seems like an indulgence. It seems." Uh, like uh, not the best use of time right now, to which I said, and and still believe that spiritual practices, the the deep ones, the the, the effective ones, are not just uh, a refuge from the tr- troubles of the world, but um, are a platform from which we can uh, engage in whatever we do in taking action uh, more effectively. So you can come to whatever contribution you're making, whatever action you're taking, with more compassion and more love and more clarity of thought and uh, more equanimity. So it was, it was those two kind of what I consider uh, flawed thinking, erroneous reactions to the craziness of the times that prompted me to, to write a whole book about uh, useful <clears throat> useful spiritual practices. I think it's like, I think that's great. And you're, I didn't realize that, well, probably if I thought about it deep enough, how there's always something the mind tries to take you away from. And <laughs> spiritual practice may be one of those. Because I said, it does ground you to have more compassion in a time where everyone around seemed to be frantically trying to figure out life and trying to understand the circumstances. And the first reaction is sort of that, you know, um, that anxiety or that fear or that need to stand. But like, how can you stand with compassion? And I think that's what you're really getting at with, especially when it comes to being meditative or doing your spiritual practice as you protest or as you try to um, figure out what's going on with your work or the pandemic and all those fears. It's like, I think that's really important. And so for you, what kind of, have you noticed any changes when we got into the pandemic and through these protests when it comes to your own practices? My own. Um, Well, my life as it happens did not, dramatically change. I, I had been planning, uh, with the exception of a couple, a little travel that had to be canceled and some speaking engagements that had to be done by Zoom instead of in person. I had planned to spend uh, most of the time between um, mid-February when I returned from a trip to India and now uh at home <laughs> i had i want i was going to be writing and preparing for the uh, release of my book um and so my life didn't change that radically if anything um i was able to devote uh, a little more time to my spiritual practices because i was not running around as much and uh you know social and professional obligations that brought me to different places even locally 
uh, were, were out of the question. So I was able to have a little bit of a mini retreat. And I know a lot of other people who have done that. And it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity if, if you're among the privileged, you know, and lucky who can, uh, who has been able to use this time in that way and by turning within, by being more introspective. Uh, and devoting perhaps more time to the spiritual dimension of life. Uh, at the same time, I, I always remind people in that category while they're taking advantage of that, that um, a whole lot of people in the world don't have that good fortune and are suffering mightily, uh, both from illness and uh, economically, and the, the many, many people who... Uh, had to continue working because they're in what we called essential uh, professions. They were essential workers and putting themselves at great risk. Um, and so part of spiritual uh, practice at, at such a time, uh, to me, is, is to exercise the spiritual virtues of compassion and kindness and uh, empathy on behalf of, of, of those who are uh, going through very difficult times. And what is it that you use for your spiritual practice? What's your go-to? My go-to personally? Well, I started practicing transcendental meditation. I, I, now I'm going to give away my age. <laughs> I started doing that in 1968. Uh, and, right when you were uh, born, <laughs> right, yeah, out of the, right out of the womb. I was, a, <laughs> I was a toddler meditator, uh, but, but you know, I was I was in the you know '60s counterculture generation, and um, so that was my uh, uh, well, it's not my initiation into spiritual life, but it was the practice that uh, I took to and. Uh, I pursued it and I actually became a teacher of it in the 70s. And um, that remains the centerpiece of my spiritual routine. I have, you know, added uh, things I do before, things I do after, things I do at other times. But, but that's the, uh, that deep meditation is a centerpiece of my personal practice. And it's what I recommend most highly in, in my book that, you know, the cornerstone of a, of a spiritual repertoire or inventory should be something that takes you deep within to the, what I call the sanctuary of peace and fortress of strength that we all have within us and uh, practices that bring you to that. Uh, are to me essential yeah and especially in these 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 times i'm thinking about like those who are grieving now in the sense of a loss of a loved one um and how these spiritual practices come about and sometimes you know i see how people are led towards them because they're in such deep suffering they almost do it more often than yes and not yes uh, well there's two in my experience there are two sets of life circumstances that turn people uh, to explore uh, spirituality or explore thing, the dimension of life that's 
you know, bigger than them, themselves and their their own individual uh, circumstances. And one is uh, a great suffering, but the other is the opposite. Sometimes people whose lives are going beautifully and who are very fortunate materially and family-wise and all that, very often they'll wake up one day and say, I have, everything is right according to the um, criteria that society tells us would make us happy, and yet I'm not. I'm not happy. Something's missing. I'm, I'm not fulfilled. What's going on here? Why, why am I not as happy as I thought I'd be after I achieved these things? And that, too, can lead to a spiritual search because it works on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, that's interesting. I, uh, I, can, I can see that. And you see some people who wrote books and, and talked about that, how like, they could win the lottery or they, they buy everything that they've always dreamed of, and they're just still unhappy. And it's like, what is yes. it? Like, how can I get to a place? Because I thought that was the answer, but it's not. Yes, that's that's not uncommon, especially in the Western world where achieving a certain amount uh, usually means you have uh, enough material means, uh, enough affluence to be able to afford to embark on a spiritual search to you know, read the books and visit the teachers and go to sacred places and all that. Um, and so that, that seems to be a rather common thing in, uh, you know, affluent circles. Um, whereas in, in, in less developed countries where there, you know, people are struggling more materially, the, the search or the, spirit, the spiritual dimension of life is often built in. It's often a cultural phenomenon. It's not something one just you know decides to do one day. You 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 grow up with it. You grow up with that milieu. It might change and intensify at different times, but that that's one of the things I've observed. And you're right about grief. This is a time of, of grieving in many ways, not just for for the loss of loved ones, but um, for for other kinds of. Uh, senses, other ways we sense loss, loss of jobs, loss of friendships, loss of uh, uh, activities, uh, loss of a sense of certainty, loss of hope. There's all kinds of loss that, that people are grieving these days. Yeah, so hopefully like this book that uh, you've written can help those people uh, to try to understand a little bit more of maybe a different way or a different tool to try to find peace in their heart and peace as they sort of walk through these, these crazy times. I hope so, Joshua. <laughs> All you can do is try and see where it leads people, right? Like at the end of the well, day. Well, on one hand, I have, you know, the book was uh, released early as a, in the ebook version, you know, for Kindle and other apps. Uh, so we've already gotten a good deal of feedback now with the release of the actual physical book. I, I can say with some confidence that it's already shown to be helping a good number of people, and that, that that's very satisfying. So, Philip, I have a question uh, just about the writing in general. Were you always? Did you plan to be a writer, or how did how did that come about? <laughs> because you've had such a long 
you know, 25 <laughs> books is substantial. So how did, how did that kind of. Well, it's a very, it's an interesting tale. I'll give you the short version. Sure. Um, yeah. I floundered around a lot in my student years. Um, couldn't figure out what to major. I, I changed majors in college and graduate school, you know, I don't know, eight, ten times. Uh, I didn't know what, what my career path should be. Um, <clears throat> even in after I left graduate school and had my first job, and then I, be, I became a meditation teacher. Even then, I was I was like, oh, well, these are temporary. I don't know what I really want to do with my life. And I was very confused. Um, <clears throat> and then I realized, after I had the uh, opportunity to, to write something professionally, just by chance, um, I realized the only consistent thing in all of my you know fumbling around and experimenting and, and, and changes was that i wrote well and i was i was always interested in a wide variety of things that's why i couldn't settle down and specialize but what was consistent was my love for words and my ability to write so no matter what course i took i would be told i wrote well <laughs> and whatever job I had, where I was told I wrote good reports. And so somehow, finally, it occurred to me that maybe, you know, that's where, you know, my destiny lay. And then the opportunities arose and uh, I had, you know, some uh, professional writers I knew, uh, you know, helped verify that I may be making a good choice by pursuing it as a career. And, uh, you know, so I did. Beautiful. I feel but I want to add on. something else. I want to add something else in case anybody's sure. listening, uh, who, you know, is struggling with similar things as I had been after I became a writer and was, moving ahead and so forth. People I had known in back in college and graduate school told me, oh, we, I always knew you'd be a writer. You used to talk about it. And I never remember. I didn't remember that. But apparently, maybe when I was just fantasizing, I would say, yeah, I want someday I want to be a writer. And I just had never taken it seriously myself. So anybody out there <laughs> floundering at such things, ask the people who know you well <laughs> what you might have said or, or, or fantasized in your unguarded moments. Very interesting. I relate to your, um, I relate to that story very much so because I, I have always had a love for words as well. And in each kind of job and endeavor, I, you know, kind of dabble in, writing but you know there's always been that kind of disconnect between like is that even feasible is that a thing is that a thing yeah. that i could you know survive on for lack of a right. better a, well, a better that, term that piece of it is a whole other story because there's right writing and there's being a professional writer there's writing for satisfaction right. and to share and there's writing as a career choice that's a, you know right that, that's into different territory completely. very interesting yes it is 
And here you are. So I asked, <laughs> yes, and here you are. I actually um, recently, probably just before the pandemic hit, I was in the public library in my community and came across the book unexpectedly, The Life of Yogananda, saw it there on the shelf and the image on the cover you know, jumped out at me. It caught my attention. I kind of been loosely, I guess, following the work of Yogananda for the past number of years. And I've always felt kind of a a connection there. And his work has really resonated with my life. And, and so, yeah, I was pleased when I, I found the book. And of course, I picked it up and I ended up checking it out that day and began reading it. And, you know, just I love it. I think it's so fascinating. And then when I had spoken with Josh at a later date, I said, I, I wonder if he would be willing to talk to us. So this is kind of a cool progression of, you know, getting from A, a to B and to have the opportunity to have this conversation. <laughs> well, I'm, delighted. Um, I'm delighted the book was me? in your, I say I'm delighted the book was in your library. I'm delighted it uh attracted you and I'm delighted that you have found it of value. Yeah, I just I just feel like I said to Josh, oh, it's that easy. Do you know what I mean? Because it sometimes things happen so effortlessly and then like, oh maybe we should try that. And then it just goes from a thought to, you know, re reality. And you know, we've had a, a number of experiences that have kind of dominoed in the same way. So that's kind of a cool um, mm. I consider it, you know, a wink. And so what you, cause you obviously have a deep interest in Yogananda and, and, and the story and his, his life. And I'm wondering how that kind of got sparked. Well, um, I'll give you the short version. Uh, I, okay. <laughs> I first read his autobiography of a yogi in 1970 in the early days of my own spiritual path. Uh, it had a, uh, a, a profound impact on me as it has for millions of people. I never became a disciple of his or a student of his work, but he was one of the prime teachers representing the uh, wisdom of India, which I have been drawn to all my adult life, who influenced me. And I, I you know, still have that copy I read in 1970. Um, and then uh, as my book prior to the life of Yogananda was called American Veda. And, uh, you know, it was a big enterprise of uh, covering 200 years of history of how these teachings from India came to the West and influenced our culture uh, all throughout the uh, U.S. and Canada and to a different degree in, in Europe. Um, and so in that context, I learned, I had to speak about all the primary teachers who came here from India. And of course, Yogananda was one of the most important, if not the most important. And in writing about him, I, I became fascinated by his, uh, not just his work, but his life, his life story and the narrative arc of it. And I realized how much he left out of his own autobiography. And so after American Veda had been out for a while and was well-received, I thought, you know, I, should, I could follow it up with the story of uh, Yogananda's life and, 
and write a biography and not just you know the short chapter I had to devote to him in the book. And uh, so uh, I, I started pursuing it and it worked out and ended up on the bookshelf in British Columbia. Wow, phenomenal, very interesting. So yeah. Josh, how, how did you receive the book? How did you like the book? What did you learn that was different from Medja or Med? How do you pronounce that? Medja. <laughs> yes. The other book, because yeah. we kind of read that after autobiography. Oh, Medja, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm about seven chapters into uh, your book right now, The Life of Yogananda. But yeah, I realized that too when I came to Autobiography of a Yogi how there's a lot of details missing. And so when I found Medya and it talked about his early life as a, as a child and it's his brother's perspective, right? On everything that happened mm -hmm. in the family, I was so blown away. And you realize, yeah. wow, yoga, he didn't really talk about himself. You know, like oh. this is autobiography, but he's not really talking. Well, about you have to keep reading, Josh, because what he really left out of autobiography of Yogi was his, what happens after he comes to America. Mm. Uh, there's less than ten percent of his his autobiography is about those years, and they're you know thirty two years of his life, the, 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 the years he was most productive. His, adult years and so that's the that's the the bulk of my research was was really about that and and uh, so there's a, a lot of gaps filled in about you know what happened after he came here so how did you figure that out how did you figure out the gaps did you just talk to everyone uh, you, you, just, you do your your legwork you know there's there are archives i i, I was able to get some access to there's uh, People who knew him had written about him, had kept diaries. There were letters, there were newspaper accounts, there were uh, documents in the uh, government archives. So you you just you know comb you comb your all the usual sources. What's that? I said you just hit the stacks. Well, yeah. Well, it, you, it, in the past, it would have been hitting the stacks. Uh, the internet has made that a lot easier. <laughs> Agreed. So, and also, you know, you... I went to India and and you know spent time in the places he had spent time in India as well. So, yeah, I'm curious because like you you hear a lot of reports of you know, or people's reports of dreams of like Jesus or saints. I wonder like throughout your time, did you ever find anyone reporting having these dreams of Yogananda? I've never had yeah. one yet. I, I kind of no, wish people, I have. Maybe, uh, maybe after I'm done your book, <laughs> I'll get one. <laughs> you know what's interesting? I have never had a dream where he's appeared in a dream. Um, even while I was working on it. And people have asked me if I felt his presence, if I was uh, guided by his spirit in any ways. And, and I, I would say, and I mean it, uh, in a certain subtle way that could be true. But I never had a vision of him. I never dreamed of him. I've had many, many dreams of my mother who died when I was 21 over the years. Uh, my father who died just... Uh, 15 or 18 years ago, I've had dreams of him. I've had dreams of friends and relatives who have died. But I've never, had, I did never had a dream of Yogananda. 
That said, many people have. I have met many, many people, and there are reports of, uh, of people who knew him, direct disciples had written in their journals and their memoirs of him coming to them after his passing uh, in dreams, giving them guidance uh, or, you know, engaged in some activity that had symbolic meaning to them. Uh, this was fairly frequent. And I know people who were, you know, born long after Yogananda passed, but who became, who feel like he's their guru. Uh, and he's come to people, you know, even now, almost uh, 70 years after his passing, people still, you know, will have dreams in which he comes to them and tells them what to do or gives them advice or answers a question uh, or just tell, says something kind of mysterious and enigmatic that they have to figure out the meaning of. So it's not uncommon, as, and it's not uncommon in my experience with people who have a connection to any spiritual luminary, any, you know, whether it's Jesus or Buddha or, uh, you know, the guru they met when they were young or somebody, you know, a contemporary spiritual leader. It's not uncommon at all. Yeah, I find it fascinating how these dreams not only they exist, but they also look similar to dreams of, I guess, not gurus, but like loved ones and how like loved yes. ones give advice or comfort and they just do it in their own way. And it seems and like I, I know, Jade, you had one of Maharaji, which we talked about uh, before, and I had one with mm -hmm. Ram Das. Um, oh, did you? I did. Yeah. And so it, it's kind of when he was still living or since he's passed, since he's passed. And um, so it's it, they're beautiful moments and yeah. these are people like you're, for the most part you've never met but yet you're having a moment uh, with them in that in that space and it it does something to your faith and it can do something to your connection to them almost that bond it can get strengthened because absolutely like no it's it, it's fairly uh, a common phenomenon and uh and you know yogananda himself put uh, great stock in dreams he would speak about dreams a lot and um, you know certain experiences that happened uh, in his life uh, some I guess you would call visions as opposed to dreams that occur in, you know in the sleep state but you know he would have he would take such experiences quite seriously yeah when I was reading because I reread autobiography of a yogi and he does mention uh, something about these sort of grief dreams. And I was really shocked because it's like, you know, it's funny when you reread something and like your focus in life has changed, what you see is pops out differently. And he yeah. talked about, you know, like that dreams uh, can, you know, your long dead friends can appear in dreams. And I'm like, huh, yeah. interesting. You know, like, the, so he knew, I wonder if he ever dreamt of his mom. That you know, I, I, when you invited me on the show, that's one of the first things I thought of, and I and I, you know, had to tax my memory to think that did, did, did he ever mention that? I looked in my own book to see. <laughs> yeah, I did searches, and my own book doesn't say anything about him having uh, mentioning a dream of his mother, but he had visions and 
she, her presence was very important to him. And he wrote, a, you know, a wonderful long poem about her that, uh, oh, I forget the exact title, but it has to do with dark eyes or brown eyes of his mother. Um, and so uh, her visage, probably her voice, all of that uh, would come to him now. But I don't remember him mentioning, you know, awakening from a dream of her or remembering a dream that came in the night of her. He may have in his letters, but, you know, I didn't comb them again, you know, after I, I finished the book. But it wouldn't shock me if he did. He was very close to her. And her, uh, to his credit, uh, one of the most endearing things about uh, his own statements about his own personal life was his love for his mother and how devastating it was to lose her when he was 11 years old and what the loss meant to his family and what it uh, subsequently meant to the direction of his own spiritual life. It was quite, it's quite moving and revealing because a, a great, you know, monk, Yogananda was a monk. He was a renunciate, at what in India they call a sannyasi. Um, and, uh, you know, with the title of a Swami. Um, and they don't usually speak about such things, about their, you know, personal lives before they became uh, renunciates. But he did. And it's, it, it's very moving. Yeah, I think that's beautiful to be able to talk about your own grief experience because it, it can help you normalize what, what you go through. And you can see the longing that he definitely had. And I know there was there was that one dream that was almost like it was a grief dream prior to her death. Yes. Where, yeah, he had basically the dream of uh, the mother coming and basically telling him that she was going to die soon. And yes. to wait, wake up his father. And, his, and the story goes, his father, you know, um, woke up but said, you know, he was just imagining everything. She was fine. And then, then she dies soon after. Yes. Um, uh, it's a... It's a... It's a beautiful, uh, it, from my perspective as a writer, there were certain aspects of his life uh, that were incredibly satisfying to narrate um, and to tell, you know, the story of in ways that he couldn't, with details he left out. Uh, one, of, one of them, of course, was the, the period preceding his death in 1952 and others were the circumstances around the death of his guru and the circumstances uh, preceding and following the death of his mother and what you describe is is a beautiful thing and he does he had it's unclear whether you know you could call it a dream but he says he was awakened in the night and uh, the vision of his mother was uh, present and she says uh, she was uh, away from the family home uh, preparing for her other son's wedding in calcutta and she says go wake up your father if you want to see me before i die you better hurry up and uh, he does and he follows those instructions but they do get there too late, so he did, never did get to see her again. There's another instance where he uh, awakens with a dream 
of uh, his beloved pet deer uh, dying uh, when he was uh, running a school for boys. And, um, and that uh, was also a kind of an interesting dream. There were other things that one might call premonitions or visions like uh, in, in his life as well. But the one about his mother was very vivid, very clear, and one he acted upon. I'm curious. And he was 11, I should say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, you both lost your mothers pretty early in life. You yeah. You're, well, yeah. You're 21, I was, right? I was only 21. My Actually, my younger brother was only 14, so he was closer to Yogananda's age. But um, I guess maybe that's one of the reasons it was so moving to me to write about it and to read, you know, to, to sort, of, sort of try to uh, put myself in his shoes because. Uh, the death of my mother at, at 21 was, you know, the trauma of my life, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that one ever gets over such a thing. But uh, to the extent I have, it's taken many, many years. And she would come to me fairly often in dreams, uh, much uh, less uh, frequently as time went by, uh, but. And and I don't know if you if this is common, Josh, but uh, you tell me uh, some uh, a good portion of those dreams. Uh, <laughs> it's almost laughable. Was she, she would come into the family home and is oh my god oh you're back, you know where have you been? It, like she had come, uh, you know, been been on a. a, a a vacation or a business trip and didn't get back when we expect her to. It was, you know, that kind of uh, realistic, you know, <laughs> uh, wish fulfillment, I suppose. Yeah, that, that is actually really common for people to have, especially yeah. like earlier on in loss too, when you're trying to really understand that the individual has died. But what what's really cool is that, you know, as, you know, like time progresses, usually it's just the, Oh my God, you're here. And then there's usually some type of message or something that comes afterwards. But like once the yeah. mind settles down, because it's the mind is trying to figure this out, right? What's going on? You're supposed to be dead. And it's like they give some kind of weird explanation sometimes on like yeah. why they're why they're here. Like, you know, they didn't like being dead or something. They'll just give some reason. But then there's like a yeah. message or something else that comes afterwards that is more of the, the point of the dream. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> so funny when it's like, oh, I was held up at the grocery store, or I was, I was just, I had a dentist appointment. These just very, um, you know, realistic kind of simple explanations for, you know, simplifying why they've been gone and interesting. Right, right. Uh, yes, and and sometimes you know it's followed by uh, advice that you needed or or some enigmatic message that you have to decipher <laughs> which is always uh, I I love that element of it I love um, having conversations about people trying to wrap their head around those those messages because they're so highly personalized and unless you you know really know somebody or you have a higher degree of self-awareness um, you're able to kind of put those pieces together but me and Joshua always really have fun conversations around you know piecing things together and you know making sense of of those 
those messages and it's been cool you know a cool element to to reflect and you know take time to reflect on yeah and sometimes they're just so spot on there's no interpretation necessary i remember uh, i remember in my uh mid-20s maybe uh i had one of those dreams where oh look mom's home and (laughs) and everybody greets her and say where you been and at one point she says something about the woman i was dating that indicated "Mm, not the good best match for you son and it was like (laughs) (laughs) and that she turned out to be quite correct Right. So you did you, you so you waited long enough to make sure you didn't <laughs> jump on the gun and just no I didn't I didn't uh, immediately wake up and get on the phone and uh, dump the girlfriend. But, yeah. He it, he it, proceeded it, with caution, I guess. I proceeded with caution for whatever. I don't know how much more time, but it it just it was it became obvious, and yeah, I was uh, yeah, it was, it was a part of me that said, "Well, thanks, mom. You you just made this a lot easier." <laughs> that's right and then when they ask you say my mom told me so <laughs> that's right yeah I, it's a, yeah I, I couldn't go against my family <laughs> that's funny do you have any more really memorable dreams from anyone who has passed you said you had a, a lot of dreams from really um not just your mother but through your father and, and friends yeah there have been those i i i'm i've never uh for for whatever reason, uh, my dreams don't tend to be uh, vivid every night or memorable. Uh, but there have been over the years, in addition to that kind of dream, my my after my dad died, I was already you know old, well, much older than my mother was when she died. By the time my father died, you know, I was in my late fifties or something. And uh, so he lived, uh, you know, a normal lifespan. He didn't die young like my mother did. So the the element of tragedy and, uh, you know, uh, untimely loss was not there. But, of course, he was my dad. And, you know, we had a whole history. And and a, a big part of my history with my father in my early years was around sports, especially baseball. And so I've had dreams where we would baseball on the baseball field. I've had you know, teammates. That I had dreams where we were opponents when <laughs> I was pitching against him as he was the batter. You know, and I had I had one memorable dream where uh, I was called uh, up uh, from the dugout to pinch hit for my dad, and that uh, that. That led to a lot of introspection. <laughs> uh, so there, there have been things like that, and I've, I've had dreams uh, where friends who died, you know, at relatively young ages, tragically, uh, would show up, uh, and we'd have a nice reunion in our in my dream. That's amazing. I love the uh, baseball dreams. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> interesting and so would you have said like these dreams uh helped you at all during your grief or was that something um they were just there Mm, well 
the one that uh, encouraged me or discouraged me from staying with the girlfriend certainly helped. But I think most of the most of them were just they, they weren't like take anything I, I I would necessarily with some exceptions like you know some one or two of the, the baseball dreams with my father which I thought always had symbolic meaning and metaphorically you know would taught me something about my relationship with him and so forth most of them were were just I w- I would walk away just feeling warm feelings for the person I lost or or tender uh, uh, sense of grief. But for the most part, I I always saw them as positive experiences that, in a sense, kept um, not just a memory, but a sense of presence of the person uh, with me and a reminder of how much I missed them. Yeah, it really brings back that continuing bond and and even just to see him again, like I, like when I see my father, um, when I dream of him, like, cause I forget, you know, like, and I forget like those small tells that they, they had. And just like, it's for me, there's, you, know, you can look at a picture or a video, but it's not the same as when you actually have a dream and you're in it live. Yeah. You're, you're seeing them. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad your dreams. It's, they seem to be said like positive experiences. I don't know. All of them are. And so I'm happy that you actually have those experiences um, after these these losses that you, yeah. have, you have. And I'll tell you, one of the ways it's helped me is in helping other people who are going, who are having difficulty with grief and and thinking there's something wrong with them for still feeling the loss so acutely years after the loss of their loved one. And and I learned, I think, partly through the dreams, partly through just life experience, that that kind of reliving the, the sense of loss and the the lingering sense of grief that returns from time to time, it's it's not a bad thing. It 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 just means you love the person, and and the love is still there. It just you know feels like grief and loss and and should be welcomed and honored because it's 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 all love and i think the the dreams helped me realize that i like that sentiment Uh, a beautiful reminder of love that's been my experiences as well and some you know dreams that i've had might not be overly profound or but just this kind of i guess subtle feeling a subtle reminder of you know all all the all the different ways that love manifests and how it changes us and and you know makes us more i guess worldly full and um so yeah beautiful mm-hmm. i was i'm curious uh, when i look back to your mom what is the one thing that she used to do that showed you that she loved you oh my god well, you know, as it happens, I'm working on a novel that is based on uh, my own family. So uh, my departed parents are very much with me, as they were uh, in the in the forms they were you know, many many years ago. Um, what did she 
you're not talking about in dreams. You mean in real life, yeah, right? In, in real life, yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. I never, ever doubted it. So maybe, you know, her love was just so present and so uh, ubiquitous that there were no one thing comes to mind. But, um, well, I, okay, I'll say this. She was a lot of fun, you know, especially when I was in my late teens before she died and I was somewhat grown up. We had a lot of fun together. We would laugh a lot, just uh, enjoy life. And, and she was um, very popular among my friends. My friends loved to visit my house because both my mom and dad were a lot of fun. And the one thing my mom really had was she had a curiosity and a sense of empathy. So she was a good questioner. And, and not every parent is that way with, uh, you know, an adolescent or a teenage child or, or even, you know, especially a seven or eight-year-old. Uh, and she would just talk to us, like, you know, what about our lives and ask questions and draw stories and feelings out of us. And I think that was a form of love I never could quite appreciate, of course, uh, until I had uh, nieces and nephews. I never had children, but I had nieces and nephews, and I, I, didn't, I couldn't quite figure out how to talk to them. And I would remember my mother was really good at that. <laughs> and and uh, I think that that may have been a way of expressing love. Yeah, I like that. I like I like how you're sort of showcasing that you know, love had different forms and to really, she was really present with you and was able to, and was really curious about who you were and what your experiences are. And, she, and that's a, such a beautiful, beautiful parenting style. Cause I don't like, my dad was less about that and more about telling me how the world is and trying to protect me. But mm. like there's that other state where like, they're almost like treating you as a friend and as someone that they want to get to know rather than yeah. control. Yeah. And so I think that's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And later in my life, you know, I, as I said, she died when I was 21. And the years, you know, between 18 and her, her getting quite ill and passing, um, they were difficult years. It was 1960s. I was, you know, floundering around in school a lot, and going, you know, having different adventures, not sure what I wanted do with my life and I was very involved in the uh, political upheavals of that time and she was ex incredibly supportive of my own sort of individual uh, decisions and you know letting me know that uh, she's behind me whatever I chose to do and whatever uh, would make me happy. And I, I valued that a lot, and, and I valued it a lot more as I got older and reflected upon it. There was an acceptance. That's amazing. No, it's so it's it's so beautiful, and you know I'm glad you had her as a mother. I, I really am because you turned out to be something special in this world, and you're continuing to spread your knowledge and your wisdom, and your peace and your questioning style to others through your podcast, through your book. And it's great to sort of see that and see what a life can be when you follow your heart and really go with what you're good at. 
Well, thank you. That's very kind, Josh. And uh, makes me think, gee, uh, maybe mom would be proud. She I probably would. She would <laughs> yeah, I think, I think she would be. Yeah. <laughs> now that you broke up with that girl. <laughs> yeah, well. <that's> <laughs> you know, every once in a while, I uh, think, oh, I wish my mom could have met my wife. They would have liked each other. <laughs> Beautiful. Has your wife ever dreamt of your mother? Oh, that's an interesting question. I'll have to ask her. I don't mm -hmm. remember her ever telling me that, but she may have. She'll, if she has, she'll be very upset when I tell her I, I didn't remember. But <laughs> you know, that's a good question. I, I, I wonder. It's probably not uncommon. I'm guessing if you ask the question. Yeah. No. It's with not. with couples. All right, Jay, you want to do the last question? I do, yeah. I just want to say first that this conversation has uh, sparked some different things in my own brain, and it's been, you know, reflections on my own life and, and um, just, you know, how people navigate their, their path and find their little sweet spot in the world. It's really interesting to me, and I love hearing people's stories of how they get from here to there to there. and and even though I know it's only a, you know, a very small portion of, of your life, I'm, I'm just grateful for, you know, that you came and, and you share a piece of that. And I'm sure that the people that are listening to this will feel inspired and, you know, carve out some space to kind of absorb some of these insights. So that's great. Thank you for that. And we always like to finish off the, the podcast with a final question. And, and that question is, if you could have any dream of a loss loved one tonight who would it be of and if you could detail a little bit of the setting that would be just wonderful Ooh. well we've talked so much about uh my mother um i will uh i will choose my dad you know he died much more recently it would be uh, quite lovely to uh, have a visitation from and uh, there's all there's questions I I always wished I'd asked him, and so maybe uh, a, a dream conversation could be the way to do it. And would this be at a baseball diamond? <laughs> no. <laughs> We've had enough baseball here. <laughs> Where would it be in the world? Where would it take place? Yeah. Huh. Okay. I will say uh, my childhood home. Yeah. The, okay. the, the 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 old the earliest memories of where he and I were together. And even though it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> it right. And so my question um, for for this dream that you're creating. What age would you want him to be at? Would you want him to be at the age he died, older or younger when he was in better health? Um, no, my memories of him when he was young and I was a boy are, are quite vivid. I would want him to be uh, in the years following my mother's death. He would have still been quite young. He would have been in you know 50-ish, early 50s. But uh, 
I would love to, you know, see him as he was then and, and talk to him about what those, what that period was like in his life and how he saw me and my brother and, you know, certain events that took place. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Hopefully you get that dream tonight. And if you do, please let us know. We're always Okay, you'll be the first. You'll be the first. <laughs> <laughs> and um philip if anyone is listening to this podcast and is interested in feedback or reaching out to you sending you and you know a message or a, a note or something how can they go about finding you i'm tempted to say in their dreams but i won't <laughs> um, and you're not dead yet so it won't fit I'm the not theme dead yet, right? <laughs> Um, my uh, my website is uh, philipgoldberg.com philip with one l goldberg.com and they can learn more about me and my work there and uh, reach me by email through the website beautiful thank you so much and then your book where can they find your new book uh, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, uh, official publication date August 4th, will be available in all the usual uh, bookselling uh, locations online and to whatever extent uh, bookstores are open then. And uh, yeah, the usual, usual places. Okay. And all my previous, many of my previous books, like The Life of Yogananda, an American Veda also available, of course, at, you know, Amazon and the equivalents. My podcast is called Spirit Matters. It's free podcast, and there's a uh, an an archive of nearly 300 interviews with spiritual teachers and leaders that um, we're happy to share with the world. So, want to encourage people to find Spirit Matters podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I will be uh, taking a deeper dive into into that as well. And as I finish the life of, of Yogananda, I'm really enjoying this piece of work and ex I hope to expand my, you know, knowledge of your work, experience of your work and just really enjoy your, your writing and um, happy that I stumbled upon the book and, you know, we followed we follow through in, in reaching out. So yeah, from where I'm standing, a little bit of a divine connection. And I just know that the listeners are really going to get a lot of this episode. So thank you again for, for your willingness oh, to talk with us. My pleasure. I thank you for finding me. All right. And to wrap up this podcast, please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. We had a donation button and you can donate uh, through that. Um, also, we have a Facebook group that you can join, the Grief Dreams Facebook group, um, where you can share your dreams there. And we're on Twitter and Instagram, at Grief Dreams, as we like to say, with love and gratitude from us to you.
I have introduced myself, you have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.